1: Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on TV. Terms and restrictions apply. ¶¶
2: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show, a weekend review edition of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Ryan Bailey is not here with us uh, this morning, so we do not have a rhyming introduction. I have not tried to challenge him this time because we just have so much to discuss. We had a weekend that saw Liverpool win despite scoring zero goals. We had a 17-card Matthew LaHawes special in the Barcelona (laughs) Derby. Uh, Marcus Rashford went into timeout and then came out and scored. Arsenal cannot be defeated. Erling Haaland is very likely a Terminator at this point. Uh, You would have to work pretty hard to convince me otherwise. Graham Potter is on an improbable hot seat. And it was a weekend, so Kareem Benzema scored. Uh, But before we get to all that action, I should introduce my two co-hosts first. A man this is the most important introduction I think I've given him. A man who has reignited my love of breakfast cereal as
3: a food. It's Graham Ruthven. Hi, Graham. <laughs> oh, what an honor. I mean, I feel like <laughs> I have single handedly boosted the breakfast cereal economy, which at this type time in these economic times is is probably uh, is worth something to, to Kellogg's and, and all those guys. So thank you. That that is a what an honor that is bestowed on me, Taylor Rotwell. It's such a weird like thing that I kind of
2: forgot was a possibility. But watching Graham just be like, I'm hungry, bowl of cereal. Okay, I'm good to go. It's like,
3: right, I could do that. Yes, we, exactly. have, we have multiple boxes qu- of cereal now. It is the quickest possible meal. This is how I watch so many games of soccer. It's just a, a cereal diet. Exactly. <laughs> it is still hard for
2: me to be like, cinnamon toast crunch. That's the way to start the day. That, that is just pure sugar. I'm <laughs> not sure I have the That's uh, the only metabolism. way to start the day. Is there another way? <laughs> Uh, No, I don't think there is. So thank you for that, Graham. Uh, Joining us, uh, myself and Mr. Ruthven, a man who is dramatically overperforming his bling per stocking ratio, it's Joe
1: Lowry. Hi, Joe. (laughs) This is the beauty of the Patreon, ladies and gentlemen. So I was trying to think, okay, what do I do for the Patreon? I don't have a bunch of soccer books to show like Graham, although I do have one that I'm going to feature on. Not one that I've written, but a soccer book that I really enjoyed reading over the holiday season. I'm going to put that on Patreon this week, so stay tuned for that. But I was thinking, what do I do? It's time to put down our, our Christmas decorations. And so I was looking around and thought, this stocking is weirdly blingy. And I've, I've realized that other people don't have stockings like this. I will show the stocking off to the world. And yes, I, I am significantly outperforming that, that bling per stocking BPS ratio. Is that what we're calling mm-hmm. it, Taylor? Sure. <laughs> Perfect.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Joe Joe you need to wear that. Next time we play a pickup game or yep. five-a-sides or whatever, mm-hmm. you need to wear that. And like a professional <laughs> player, you need to like cut holes in it. Has anyone got the answer as to why Soccer players are now doing that, cutting holes in their socks. Anyway, I wouldn't, I would, I wouldn't uh, want any holes in that, in, in that stocking, Joe. It's pu- too beautiful for that, for that. But if you want it to be an authentic, sure, professional soccer player stocking, then we need to cut some holes in
1: it. Wait, why, why are people cutting what? People are cutting holes in their socks. This is news to yeah. me. Yeah, there's already a hole in your sock. That's where your foot goes. I don't, I, I don't, don't get it. I genuinely don't have an
3: answer for it. The only thing I can think of is is like compression reasons, but why just get like a bigger sock? (laughs) You're a professional soccer player. I think a manufacturer will allow you that. So I know
2: uh, from playing with some people, I know that if you have the boots that have the kind of built in sock where it has that high ankle thing, they will cut off the foot part and then they'll just have the sock. Like as like an ankle to calf sort of covering. Yeah, Uh, but that's always an odd one. But then on top of that, Graham, I know what you're talking about. The players who like cut the circles into the calf area. Yeah, all the way up the back. Yeah, I don't know if that is like a ventilation thing. If that is that their calves are so big that they they need that (laughs) extra room. But also, I've seen players do it where they have like one large circle and then a smaller circle and then a small. So it seems like a pattern. It just (laughs) seems like maybe they're like out there like uh, they would be scrapbooking if they weren't footballers.
1: But since they are. It's just pregame arts and crafts, Taylor. That's all it is. You got to do something. I mean, we we don't think about how much free time soccer players have on game day in particular. Right? The Premier League games for me are kicking off at like 5 a.m. or 7 a.m. or 9, whatever it is. For Graham, I know they're in the evening. They have all day coming up to the game. What else are you going to do? You got a scrapbook. You got to do some arts and crafts. I don't know what it is, but I think that's where we're at.
3: Maybe there's soccer sock crop circles and players are just waking up in the morning and those are there. It's not actually them that's doing it. There's, it's a mystery that is uh, spreading across <laughs> the Premier League. I like the mystery angle. Joe, I, I am very into this idea that that is like a team-building
2: exercise for every Premier League team. Like, okay, guys, last week we made our custom socks. This week we're making hand turkeys. <laughs> like, trace your hands. Like, Make them how you want to. Oh, oh that's, that's, that's just tremendous stuff. But uh, we should talk about the games. We have so many things to discuss. Uh, I still have more questions Questions for Joe about the stocking. Joe, when do your <laughs> decorations come down? My wife and I were having this, my wife yeah. and I were having this conversation. Uh, what is the day that holiday decorations need to be uh, withdrawn?
1: So, I in an ideal world, Taylor, I think it would be today as we're recording. The day after New Year's, I think the as sad as it makes me, the holiday season is is kind of over. At least you know the, the things that I think about for myself are over. So I would say it comes down today. Is it actually going to come down today, Taylor? Absolutely not, because I don't know where the time is going to come to take the Christmas tree down, to take the stockings down with the care that's required for something with such a high BPS ratio. Just keep up. I Just don't keep know. keep them all up in the Christmas they're, tree. They're definitely not going to be kept up. But Taylor, this is sort of my my first year with my wife to have to figure this out. Right. And she is, she is pro the decorations being up for as long as possible, so I am fighting an uphill battle. Yeah, just, just
3: save the time for later this year. Don't think about the time you'll save in December twenty twenty three if you don't have to put the Christmas tree up again and, and, and look out the stockings and everything. Just keep them up all year round, I see. Said
1: like a man who doesn't do make need. his bed.
3: That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> we do need like an, an
2: intermediate uh holiday between new year's day and valentine's day because then you could sort of change the decorations on the tree for that next oh. uh, holiday and then maybe add some ho- like uh, valentine stuff and you could keep it going that way i think
3: i like it what goes like on it. a valentine's day tree <laughs> i, just love hearts.
2: I mean i don't i don't support this our tree is down and i'm, and I'm okay with it uh, Grant, <laughs> w- what about you are, are you uh january 1st are you january 2nd or are you truly just leave it up until it uh all the needles fall off and it falls over
3: so my wife would have them down on Boxing Day. I think, wow, if okay. it was up to her, yeah, wow. she is very like at yesterday New Year's Day. I noticed. I asked her, "Where have all the Christmas cards gone?" She was like, "The the trash." <laughs> 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 so, okay, right. It started already. So I believe our Christmas tree will come down tomorrow after after much uh, arguing from me. That I, I I like having the Christmas tree up. I like having the sparkly mm-hmm. lights. And I think once you take all the Christmas decorations away, the house looks very bare, and you're mm. like, oh. I don't have much stuff to fill the, the shelves and in, in our living room. So, yeah, I think it will come down tomorrow. Graham,
1: sounds like you need to buy some more kits, dude. I feel like that's what solves this <laughs> yeah. problem. The house is bare. The shelves are bare. Well, this feels <laughs> like an opportunity to me. More
3: room for cereal.
1: Ex- oh, that as well. Well done. We could do like a kit
2: tree, I'm sure, for Graham. We should get <laughs> yes. him like a spiral frame that he could just so, hang different jerseys on.
3: So the most single man wow. in his 20s thing that ever happened was oh, okay. when I lived with, uh, with a flatmate who's an Everton fan, our angel on the top of our tree was David Moyes with outstretched arms, <laughs> and then I moved in with Lucy, and we had a tree together, and it was like, no, that's not going on the top of the tree, so I, I still actually have it somewhere in a box. I'll need to look that out. I, you had a tree as a single man, Graham. You are ahead yeah, of the that's, curve, That's I think. not
1: bad. It's not bad. It but, wasn't a real one. It was oh. <laughs> it was plastic, and I had David Moyes on the top of it. <laughs> that, that David Moyes angel needs to be on Patreon, like, yesterday, Graham, so that's yeah, your, I'll, that's I'll your assignment out, for yeah. this week, for sure. Uh, Joe's got points, and I appreciate them. Yeah. Uh, we do have
2: games to be discussed, uh, but we should spend a moment to talk about Pele. Uh, I was I was gone last week. Uh, I had no voice. People would not have enjoyed, uh, or, or have enjoyed me even less than they already do uh, last week with my the raspiness and the quietness. Uh, I know. I think Pele passed away after you all had finished recording. So we should spend a moment talking about him. Uh, I would say, like, like. It's been a thing that had been talked about for so long that, like, Pele was in bad health, but for him, it's still, what, 82, I think? It's still a surprise, still very young. But he passed away, is a legend, is an icon, is an influence, not an influencer, but just a massive influence on the game. Uh, Graham, I know you wanted to spend some time talking about uh, the legend that is Pele.
3: Yeah, I think we should uh, take five minutes to talk about him. Maybe the most influential soccer player of of all time. He's obviously a player who was who was well before my time, well before all our time, really. But um, he he transcended generations. And and obviously, I've seen countless clips of Pelé's goals and moments on on a, on a soccer pitch, particularly these these past few days. And obviously, all of it is incredible. There's one particular clip that has bounced around social media since his passing. Where it, it's basically all the trademark uh, pieces of skills and goals and moves of the best players of all time, so guys like Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, Brazilian Ronaldo, um, Maradona, Cruyff, all those guys, and basically the whole point of the video is Pele did it first. He, all all those all those moments and and they kind of. They compare it with what mess with uh, excuse me, Pele did over the course of his career, but um, it's it's difficult for me to truly gauge him as a player because I didn't watch him live over ninety minutes. What I can do though is judge his impact as as an icon. So he was the first true soccer icon, that the the sports first global superstar, and he actually used that status to further soccer around the world. I think he had a a, a very prominent role. In that regard, along with Yal Havalange who was the the FIFA president for a long time, he was the first non-European president of FIFA, he was a Brazilian. Um, And the two of them kind of partnered up and Pele was key in taking the World Cup to Japan and South Korea in 2002 and even before that, having a role in in Asian soccer. Of course, he went to the New York Cosmos and and took soccer to a, a new audience of the United States and that whole era is absolutely fascinating i've i've found that fascinating for a long time there's the documentary i'm sure a lot of listeners already know about and have seen but for anyone who doesn't know it's called once in a lifetime and it's about the cosmos when when pelle was there and that whole soccer boom in in, in the states even though it was quite fleeting very very interesting i, I would suggest i recommend that and please watch that documentary it is fantastic and it just gives you an idea of the of the strength of of pelle's stardom and even when you're comparing him to Messi and Ronaldo and Maradona and all these guys, these these players may have been better than Pele. I don't know. That's not really the point of of this discussion at, at this time. But in terms of an icon, an influence, I don't think anyone has has matched Pele in soccer history.
2: Yeah, I, I think that that's where I am with, with Pele. Like the the goat conversation, I think will be. Forever evolving, and I think there's always a recency bias to it. But when you look at everything he brought to the sport, how he directly led to the evolution of it, and even that move to the cosmos you mentioned there, Graham, like I was talking with somebody over the break about like Messi going to Miami and like, why would he want to come down to MLS? And my response was like, I mean, Pele came to North America, like, why not follow suit? So, like, he kind of is this trailblazer. Uh, and he's a player that when we originally started doing Soccer 101, our other podcast where we sort of get into the basics of soccer. Uh, the seventh episode was about why Pelé is so famous, basically. Not is he the best of all time, but sort of the reasons that made Pelé Pelé. And some of that is like biochemistry, that he had incredible peripheral vision and jumping ability and all these kind of next level abilities. But it was also like marketing awareness, uh, the role he played in developing Santos and helping them sort of evolve the role he played in Brazil and winning what three of the four World Cups he played in. There's just so many... Things about him that are so unique and so incredible that, yeah, I think he is probably the most influential uh, player of all time.
3: Yeah, and, and going back to that Cosmos era, I almost think that is reflective of everything we've, we've just said about Pele, about his his status and his, sta- his standing and how big an icon he was. Because obviously his best years as a player came in Brazil for Santos, where they're having the, the funeral and there's the open, the open coffin today and thousands of fans streaming through to see him. But he comes to America where he's never played before. And keep in mind that soccer, it's much more difficult to access soccer in, in the States at, at that time in the 70s and 80s. And the number of genuine celebrities who would come to the Cosmos Games to meet Pelé. There's pictures of him with Muhammad Ali and and Mick Jagger and pretty much any celebrity of the time coming to watch the Cosmos to meet Pelé for that picture with Pelé, which kind of tells you, as I say, how what how strong his um, his star power was at, at that time. So. Yeah, I, I, I um, he, he will be missed.
1: His influence will be missed, and and he's a, a a genuine superstar. And even even zooming out to today to think about icons, which I think is the word that we've come back to so many times in this conversation, there are still you know x number of years later, almost fifty years later, thinking about Pele's time with the Cosmos, there are still only a few people on Earth that I think could elicit that same reaction, right? And for Pele to do that so long ago, when means of marketing and all of those things were so much more rudimentary, right? And just so much less refined. And a lot of them didn't exist that we would use today. Social media, that kind of stuff. For Pele to have that pull then should say something about the impact that he made on the soccer world and just, just on the world period. You hear people, his peers, and you hear people later on still talk about Pele, um, right? right, of, of being sort of players that were great at his time and all of them pointing to Pele as the greatest player among greatest players I think you can see that very clearly. You could have seen that all throughout his life. And now we have a, a, a very clear look back at who he was as a player and, and the impact he made. I think it's it's incredibly obvious to see how important he was to not just soccer, but but to people outside of the sport as well.
2: I asked this jokingly, but also not jokingly. Did he make the Rich Allison back tattoo? I know his signature did, but is he yeah. the other player on just there? Just the signature,
1: I think. No, it's, he it's Ronaldo has, it's just and signature, Neymar.
2: Yeah. Ronaldo and Neymar, okay, yeah. But I, I like the idea that even then... Richarlison was like oh my gosh I forgot Pele get the signature on. Yeah. get the signature like that's how influential like even as an afterthought you have to include or, him or, or um, just
1: or Taylor sorry Richarlison knew that the tattoo no, was going to be so bad that he was like we can't put Pele on here we can't do that to Pele we can do it to Neymar we can do it to Ronaldo but not to Pele that's too far <laughs> that's
3: or, or, or or he realized the tattoo was so bad and he thought we need something to lift this a little bit let's right. just put oh the Pele tattoo right. signature on oh there Yeah, I love, I
1: love that
2: idea that he Pele was originally it was a Mount Rushmore thing he was the fourth <laughs> sure. and then they got three, three quarters of the way through when he thought like I can't do this to him no. just get the signature on there it would be disrespectful that is uh tremendous uh, a way to transition us into talking about the weekend uh, is to talk about Newcastle Leeds um because that was the first game I saw uh, like I think I missed some of the pregame stuff with other games but that was the first one where I saw the sort of opening uh moments applause for him where both teams are at the center circle I don't know why. Those don't always get me. That one did. I, I think because it's it's an English Premier League game, and yet here we are honoring this Brazilian player who uh, never played in England or maybe played friendlies but never played uh, in that way in England, and yet I think is so influential that the entire stadium is applauding this person. And, and I think that shows how influential he is, but also g- really genuinely one of the things I love about this sport is how you can have those moments of just like culture and tradition and an appreciation of a person, even after they are no longer here, uh, especially after they are no longer here. I think it really stands out. And I loved uh, Bruno Guimarães of Newcastle yeah. wearing the throwback uh, Pele kit. I thought that was really wonderful. And I love that when he went to take it off after the moment's applause, the crowd went from applause immediately to chanting for Bruno, who is a very popular player and, and very good. But I think also that was probably a solidarity moment, a moment of
3: support. And I thought that was was really, really special. Yeah, the, the symbolism of of particularly the shirt was incredible. I think because Newcastle United are stating the obvious here, black and white, so you've got that monochrome element, and then just to have the gold and green of, yeah. of the Pele shirt, just it stood out. Um, and yeah, that that was a great moment. It was
2: the other thing that I thought was appropriate is that uh, Pele wins in 58, 62 and 70. They don't win in 1966, which is played in England, uh, largely because the tactic as I understand it was to kick him as hard as you can, kick the entire Brazil team as hard as you can. And with that in mind, if he were watching this game, it would have been a reminder of why <laughs> he didn't play in England because my goodness this game was uh, it was played in the in the like torrential downpour. I cannot remember two teams who have technical ability, uh, Newcastle especially, just resorting to fouling and knocking each other around. This game was just a full-on grudge match. And so it started with this beautiful uplifting moment that reminds us that we're this collective unit and then spirals into just elbows and Tyler Adams screaming at people. And it was a very let's all appreciate Pelé and Brazil and everything they've done for the sport. And now let's go ahead and be England from 1966 for a moment. And so in that way, it felt like a fitting tribute to him. So thumbs up to uh, to both of those uh, respective tributes. With that said, let's talk about some other games. Let's move to Liverpool-Leicester, Liverpool 2, Leicester 1. Uh, I mentioned this in the
1: introduction. Joe, we had some goals uh, in very curious fashion. <laughs> yes, we did. So I don't quite know. I know this has happened before, but I personally don't remember the last time I've seen a team score zero goals and and win a game 2-1. I know it's happened before. I know own goals do happen, but this game was ridiculous. So the first goal for Leicester was a a lovely moment for them. They're starting hot in this match. It's It's a big old up, back, and through sequence, essentially. It's a goal kick over to the left wing. The ball is flicked forward. The ball then finds Drewsbury Hall near the midfield circle, and he just, like, knifes through Liverpool's midfield. Jordan Henderson can't make the tackle, and Drewsbury and, and Hall scores, excuse me, and it's 1-0. And, and Liverpool are, are kind of up against it, but they're still controlling the game, just trying to turn that into actual chances. And, and the second goal, the second Leicester goal, the first Liverpool goal, comes from a Trent Alexander-Arnold cross on the right side. And, and Foss, who's the center back for, for Leicester, was at the World Cup with Belgium, uh, didn't really impact the team a ton in that moment, did impact this game. Foss slides towards his own goal <laughs> to clear it away. And it's almost this Haji Wright-style Somehow getting a yeah. toe to it and, and it sailing into the back corner of the goal. It's, it's a wonderful finish, just the wrong side. It's, it's still not, though, the best own goal of this game. And, Graham, I'll let you do the commentary on this. I'm just going to set the scene as far as what happens. So it, it's Darwin Nunez who takes a shot off the post. Funny that he doesn't score because of the whole Darwin Nunez narrative, which I'm, I'm really enjoying. Um, Nunez doesn't score. Uh, but but good luck his teammate good thing his teammate Va- Foss is there to finish it off right <laughs> he just sort of like l- lumbers <laughs> towards the goal and he finishes extremely clinically it's a great look um, and it's two one Liverpool Foss goes to celebrate with no that that doesn't happen uh, Foss thumbs down to you thumbs down to Leicester for scoring three goals but only getting one in the back of Liverpool's net in this match yeah so
3: so the first goal is is farcical it's funny but it, it is unfortunate for 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 Fass. it's, it's I mean, he should listen. There's a loud shout from Danny Ward, so he should leave it, but he panics at the last moment and thinks, I need to deal with this, and it's too late for him to get a full swing at the clearance, yeah. so he, he does that thing where he kind of slices it and then it loops over the goalkeeper, which is very unfortunate. The second own goal, <laughs> however, I can't explain how he reacts so slowly to the, to the ball coming off the post because it's so clear that Darwin Nunes' shot is either coming off the post or it's going to be close to the post. So even if you're not sure... If you're running back to your own goal line and you're watching that ball, you're surely braced for the possibility as a defender running back that it, it might come off the post and you might be forced into a reaction. But but no, Fass, Fass just knocks it into his own net. And there are very few scenarios on a professional football pitch where I think to myself, I don't think I would have done that if I'd been in that position. <laughs> I might have done better there. But this was one of those scenarios. Look, maybe I'm not <laughs> in that position that Fass is in. Maybe I'm on the halfway line because I'm knackered. But if you plant me in that position, like five yards out from goal, I don't think i am put it in my own net in, in that scenario. So yeah, it, it was a it was a comical comical
1: moment it, for for fast, but not many people on the Leicester team were laughing. I'm I'm watching it back now. I'm sorry, it is just it's so good every time. Like it almost gets better every time you watch it. I just typed in. Uh, Fas like F A E S and then the the letter O on on YouTube and it came up right away versus Liverpool. It's great <laughs> watching. He just gets his balance wrong and I, I do feel for him. Right, it, it's funny for us. It's a brutal moment for him. I'm sure in the in this match to essentially lose his team the game. You know what? These these kinds of things do happen. The first own goal is one that we have seen a, a number of times in the past. This one though is unfortunate as well. Just in a in a delightful way. Really, that's all I got.
2: Oof. I also enjoyed the uh, you, you took your time to troll Belgium at the same time, Joe. Well, well done w- with that, with that uh, double shot for
3: with so, uh, Somehow Somehow was Roberto Martinez's fault. Somehow I'm, there right, is. We connected, connected the, the dots. Point. Let's find a way to make that happen.
2: Let's also find a way to take a break real quick. We will be back with much more
0: uh, weekend review in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before?
2: So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code T-S-S. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code T-S-S to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We are thumbs up, thumbs downing this past weekend. Let's go to Arsenal 4, Brighton 2. Joe, I'm guessing you've got some
1: thumbs for Arsenal and Mikel Arteta. I do have some thumbs for Arsenal. Thumbs up to Arsenal and their title chances, right? This is mm-hmm. this is a real thing. We had just talked, Graham, you, Ryan, and I on the, on the Patreon about Arsenal, and we did a predictions episode, right? So we predicted who was going to win all of these major pieces of silverware around Europe, and, and I think we did MLS as well, and we all predicted Man City to win the title, but we talked about how, how good Arsenal had been this year and how you know it maybe is still just a little bit too early. This is a testament to how unpredictable soccer can be and how impactful a weekend of results can be. Arsenal beating Brighton 4-2 on Saturday, goals from four different players, gets them three points. This result for Arsenal came after Man City drew 1-1 with Everton earlier in that day. So this is a big point swing here, right? Arsenal get three, Man City drop two points conceivably. Those two results, just those two, took Arsenal's Premier League lead up to seven points and gave their odds... A, a massive boost. So this is according to 538, Arsenal's chances of winning the Premier League title went from 37% compared to City's 53% before the weekend to 49%. So 37 to 49%, that's a 12 percentage point increase and City's dropped from 53% to 41. So they dropped 12 percentage points. Now, a bunch of stuff can change, right? The the odds are still, you know, not entirely there for Arsenal, but this is I think a statement of how massive this victory was. And it was another pretty strong performance from Arsenal. They didn't have to control the game with possession because they score early. It's Saka who scores in the, in the second minute of this match. Then they go up again. I mean, they didn't have to really strain themselves a lot in this match. But, man, Arsenal are putting in pretty strong performance after strong performance. They deserve credit for that. Arteta deserves credit for that. The squad they built, I think, is, is maybe out kicking its coverage slightly, but is still a good squad. Like, I am, I'm pretty much endlessly impressed with Arsenal right now. If,
3: if Arsenal beat Newcastle on Tuesday, they'll have a double-figure lead over Man City. By the time they, they play their next match, obviously Man City would still have a, a game in hand. But nonetheless, to see 10 points between the top two teams in the Premier League table would be a statement of just how brilliant Arsenal have, have been. And Joe, you kind of already referenced it there. I think we're on, on the same page here. This was the round of fixtures where it became serious for Arsenal, in my mind. Seven points clear of Man City... It's getting to the point where I'm not sure, as good as Manchester City are, I'm not sure City can allow that gap to get any bigger. Um, I guess one thing to keep in mind is because of the World Cup break, the season isn't as old as it usually would be at this time of year. So there's a lot of talk on match the day of every team that has been seven points clear at the turn of the year in in Premier League history has gone on to win the title. As I say, one thing to keep in mind is normally we're at I think around about twenty-one matches in a season, and this year we're at we're at sixteen. So we're not even halfway through the season. But even still, for Arsenal to have that advantage, I think the next month for them is going to be crucial. They've got Newcastle this week, and then by the end of January they've got uh, North London derby against Spurs, and then on the fourth of February I believe they've got a, a game a home game against Manchester United. I think if they come through that spell with nine points or or even Seven or six points, to be honest, such as the cushion that they've given themselves. If they come through that relatively unscathed, unscathed, excuse me, they'll be in excellent shape, and that's kind of the the next hurdle for them is to get through that run of fixtures and and into February, and then from February onwards, you're kind of almost in the home straight to the end of the season.
1: Graham, one other thing on that in Arsenal's schedule over the next four or five, six weeks. They also have a game against City a couple of weekends after, I believe, what you just dictated. They still have two matches, at least according to the schedule I'm looking at. They still have two games against City in this calendar year in the Premier League season. So, like, not everything is, is set here for Arsenal, and I want to make that clear. But the work that they've done this year to give themselves cushion, such that two games against City, if they lose one of those games and maybe draw the other, the fact that they're not automatically just done for, and City are, are racing away towards the top of the table, and, and City are the ones with the cushion – that's the impressive bit. So I'm curious, Graham, to your point, you know what the next 4, 5, 6 weeks look like on the field and then also in the transfer market, right? They're looking at a number of different players. They're looking at what Mudric is that the is that the right pronunciation for the the Ukrainian winger? Yeah, Mudric. So Mudric, he is he's a high price tag guy? Are they going to pull the trigger on that? Are they going to try to disrupt some of the squad chemistry. Mudrik obviously wants to come. He's posting on I don't remember if it was Instagram or Snapchat about how good of a coach Mikel Arteta is. Like he is, he is thirsty yeah, to join has, Arsenal. It's on. It's honestly, it's it's absurd to watch. It's <laughs> hilarious to watch. I've never seen a transfer saga quite like this one before. With the player making so many public comments. Has anyone comments. seen that?
3: Sorry sorry to jump in Joe did, 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 has anyone seen like the Arsenal Twitter discourse around Mudrick and how they're they're looking at his Instagram posts engaging where he is so today <laughs> I saw like they're looking at he's wearing hotel slippers so he's clearly in a hotel and, the, and this brand of he's doing weights in the gym this brand of weights is a British brand of weights so we think he's clearly in a London hotel awaiting yeah. this move to, and I'm thinking aren't Shakhtar Donetsk quite a nomadic team at this point I think they're playing away from home I think he's probably just in a hotel somewhere in Poland or something like that.
2: If that hasn't already been an athletic article, it needs to be about the ways that people track transfers, because there's that, as you mentioned, Grant, but then there's also uh, partner Instagram when they follow the club. That's always a sign. Uh, And then there's the ever famous like uh, flight tracker where you can see like, wait a minute, there's a private flight from Eindhoven to Manchester. That means something. (laughs) Uh, I, I always enjoy how people put on those extra detective skills. Uh, but with that said, I, I'm surprised that you all are surprised because I thought we had it all in our predictions that Arsenal would be seven points ahead in the new year, and then Eddie <laughs> and Keta would be scoring. Oh, Graham, did we not have right. that? Uh,
3: I mean, I did. I don't know about the rest of you guys, but um, <laughs> uh, thumbs up again to Eddie and Keta. Yeah. We, we mentioned him, Taylor, last week. He is proving a lot of people wrong as Arsenal are this season in general. But he's done. He's doing such a good job of deputizing for for Gabriel Jesus. Yes, he's scoring goals. And I'd argue that he's even given Arsenal something that Jesus didn't in terms of poaching ability inside the box. And we saw that with his goal in this match against Brighton, where he kind of just nips in and, and, and finishes from close range. I don't, I'm not necessarily sure that Jesus does that sort of thing. But I think the most impressive thing is that Nketiah hasn't changed the profile of the Arsenal attack. That was my concern when Jesus picked up that injury at the World Cup, was that he'd been so key to the way they played in the final third that even if someone was playing well as a deputy, that Arsenal attack would look different. And that hasn't been the case. Odegaard is still making those late runs from deep. Martinelli and Saka are, are still getting in behind and creating mayhem. And Arsenal are still able to play the same way with Enketia as the number nine, and as they were with Jesus. And I think that's credit to Nketiah, who's clearly watched a lot of Jesus from, from the bench this season and has made notes on what he does. And Kete, I've seen him in the two games he's played dropping deep a lot more than he does normally and, and doing more to link the play and drifting around and that's very much what Jesus does. But I also think it's credit to Arteta because that is the sign of a well-coached team where you can take one very important player out of that side and the profile of the team remains the same. Obviously, we don't know how many injuries Arsenal could could sustain to a number of of key players before that starts to shift and they would be a different team but if you're talking about one or two players coming out of that that side we've seen this season they are able to maintain that Joe do you want to spend some more time uh
2: praising Saka and or Martinelli or any other Arsenal players Thomas Partey has an incredible tackle that leads to I think the second goal Uh, for them that could have been a Brighton like 5v2 attack and one little tackle sends them the other way Uh, any other Arsenal performers you think we should spend some time with
1: yeah, Saka and Martinelli are the two that I would call out. So they each get a goal in this game. That that does a lot. Saka's is a really clean finish, and Martinelli kind of puts the the icing on the cake here for Arsenal. The other element of this, and I mentioned Mudrik earlier, is you know the Arsenal players know what's going on. They know that their their club is in talks to sign a player who is going to cost them a lot of money. Like like they're not blind to all of this. And so I am impressed always when. We see these people, these athletes, focus so much on their own craft and continue to grind, even when there's all of these other elements going on around them, like we will always have in the month of January when the transfer window is open. So I would say thumbs up to Saka, thumbs up to Martinelli for continuing to play their game and making sure that they know, okay, they're telling Mikel Arteta, hey, This is not going to be easy to replace us. I know adding depth to the squad is good, and I I do think trying to sign more high-quality players in January, this is a hot take, is a good idea for Arsenal because they they might not have the squad depth of uh, certainly a Manchester City. So either way, still thumbs up to those two wingers for doing their job and doing it very, very well in this game as Arsenal get another three points.
2: And Graham, uh, final note on this one, I'm just going to assume thumbs up to Billy Gilmore for being the most important part of this team. If (laughs) Arsenal win, it's all Billy Gilmore.
3: Yeah, of course. That's his uh, revenge on Chelsea. Is handing the Premier League title to, to Arsenal. I'm gi- I'm giving a, sum, a, a thumb a slightly up for 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 Billy Gilmore. Um, so this was him starting his his first Premier League match for Brighton. This was a tough one for him against the best team in the league right now, but he played the full 90 minutes, and for me, there was still plenty in there to suggest this move is, is going to work out for him, which was a relief to see that. Um, De Zerbe doesn't take him off, and I think he was a key part of the way they played this game. He played a brilliant line-breaking pass for Gross for the first Brighton goal. Gross then sets up Matoma, to Matoma but I think it comes from a, a, a Gilmore pass, and I actually thought he came on to a pretty good game in the, in the second half, so... I just want him to be happy, Tiller Rotwell and, and be the best midfielder in the Premier League. Is that is that too much to ask? <laughs> I don't think it is.
2: I don't think it is. I just wanted to make sure that we we gave Billy Gilmore all the credit for Arsenal winning, uh, though he plays for sure. a different team. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, credit to him. Uh, credit to Arsenal. Let's talk uh, the TSS derby for a moment. Uh, Wolves nil, Manchester United won. I feel like this fixture is always... Uh, It never is quite as exciting as it should be. Maybe that's the way Wolves sometimes set up. Maybe that's Manchester United being a little bit lackluster. Uh, And in this game, uh, I I have thumbs up to Eric Ten Hag for continuing to be a. I did write "discipline daddy" in the notes. Yes, you did. uh, Explain yourself, Taylor. No, oh no, (laughs) explain. You get to
1: explain. Uh, (laughs)
2: I mean, that's kind of what he's done with this team. Whereas I think managers in the past have let certain big name personalities kind of do what they want or it's been about just building vibes and letting people play how they want to. I appreciate that Ten Hag, from the jump, he drops a player in preseason uh, for showing up late to two different meetings so that he's not involved that player in a preseason game. Uh, The Jaden Sancho situation, where he has a family member pass away at the beginning of the season, he's sort of managing his minutes, managing his training to, I think, try to get him back into the right mental and physical state. But I think he's being... Like, for a player who, who costs that amount of money, I'm assuming there is a ton of pressure to get him into this team and have him just playing no matter what. And I think there is Eric Ten Hag sort of inserting himself to say, nope, we're going to give him the time he needs to get back to the form he needs to be in to play for this club, and until then he won't. Uh, there's obviously, there's the Ronaldo uh, the way he handled that one, where I don't think you can just like cast him off, but he kind of did. He had him training with the reserves, and then they canceled his contract because he threw a tantrum. And I, I like that he kind of held his ground. And then here uh, in the pregame, I forget what the actual phrase he used was because it was it was like disciplin- internal internal disciplinary internal disciplinary. Yeah, there it is, an odd one. And was asked to repeat it and repeated those exact words. Uh, it came out afterwards. Rashford was benched for the first half because he overslept and missed uh, a meeting. And Eric Ten Hag is not about people missing meetings. So I like We've all that this sort of, <laughs> yeah. we, we have. It's nice to know that even <laughs> world-class footballers can hit that snooze. Um,
3: although I guess there's no real snooze buttons. Nobody uses real alarms anymore. He used the yeah. like. I just I just presume Jesse Lingard was Marcus Rashford's personal alarm at this point. Uh, he just lives in the same house and that's his job there's that video Lingard posted when rashford scores we all know this of
2: course it's not just my man united fanaticism uh when rashford scored to the penalty against PSG and Jesse Lingard just posted him screaming Marcus rashford I hope oh, that yeah. means I alarm that. Block. that that needs to be his alarm it's just Jesse Lingard screaming that that's but terrifying I, actually I it was a little bit uh but I, I like that there was that sort of like I don't care how important you are and you are probably the most important attacker uh for this team right now yeah. but're you're, you're gonna sit and then you're going to come in and you're going to have an impact and it didn't feel like sometimes with Ronaldo it felt like he was like benched and then it was hoping not to have to use him because if he came on and scored it sort of changes that narrative here it felt like the plan was I'm going to sit you for 45 minutes then you're going to come on you're going to be happy you're going to score a goal uh, and things will be just fine and that is pretty much
1: how it played out Joe Marcus Rashford scoring the goal looking pretty good when he came on I thought so so I have my thumbs up directly up to Marcus Rashford who I thought looked a tiny bit like Mbappe in this game. Their profiles are very similar. And, and we've sort of gotten maybe a little confused on Marcus Rashford over the years because there has been so much on-field and off-field, to be fair, instability at Manchester United. It looks like one of those things is trending in a positive direction. The other is, is maybe not so much at the moment with questions about who's going to be owning this team in the not-so-distant future. But Marcus Rashford, I thought, Man. was was excellent in this game when he comes off the bench in the second half. He is direct, he is vertical, he was getting into good spots. His goal is fantastic, so he has the winner in this match, to be clear. It's a great goal driving inside from the left wing. That's where he comes on when he, when he does get on the field. It's a give-and-go with Bruno, who, who rides after, after Rashford gets the ball back. Excuse me. Then, then Rashford rides a bit of a challenge. He stays up and, and then scores into, into the net with a really nice finish with his right foot. I, I think at his best and Rashford is, to my mind at least, at his best right now, the best I've ever seen him play, he does remind me of Mbappe. They have a similar-ish build. You know, Rashford doesn't have the same ceiling. He's not quite as good at probably anything as killing Mbappe, but they are both incredibly vertical and incisive attackers who can cause so many problems, and I think Rashford is one of the key beneficiaries of the fact that Eric Ten Hag has been a little bit more towards the transition side of things. And Graham, you and I have talked about this in the past, than he was at Ajax, right? Man United play a little bit more on the break. There are more of those opportunities for players like Rashford to knife in behind, or in this case, really a moment where Wolves are back in their own defensive third, to just really be clever on the ball and be direct and be vertical as much as you can be when you have the ball in the final third. So thumbs up to Mbappe, uh, Mbappe. there it is. Thumbs up to Marcus Rashford in this game, who I thought looked a tiny bit like killing Mbappe, which is pretty much the highest compliment I can give you, Marcus.
3: Yeah. He, he's just a completely different player this season to the one he was last season, where when you look at how he's playing now, as you say, Joe, in this match, he is just battering through players. There's intent every time he gets on the ball. And you compare that to last season, where he looked meek and disinterested, and he was taking too many touches of the ball and, and not really driving it forward. So it speaks a lot to Ten Hag's ability as a man-manager that he's managed to... We all knew that Marcus Rashford could be this player. And... Ten Hag is getting the best out of them, and he, out of him, excuse me. And he just looks—he just looks strong at the moment, Marcus Rashford. I mean, physically as well. To look at him, he is—he's put a lot of work in the gym in 2022, or certainly since the the summer. And you see some players do that, and then it doesn't really translate into something different on the pitch. But Rashford is is using that strength to his benefit. And then even in terms of his his mentality and mindset. After the game, he's been benched for a disciplinary reason and his manager has come out and publicly said that's the reason. Now, of course, scoring the winning goal helps in this regard. But nonetheless, Rashford comes out after this game, speaks to the media, and he kind of laughs it off and he says, yeah, you know, it won't happen again. It, it, was, it was a silly thing. It was a mistake. That just says a lot to his maturity as yeah. a player and, and his standing as a leader within that group right now under Ten Hag. So lots of good things for my night right now.
2: Um since we're giving thumbs up, thumbs down, just real quick. Uh, I'm assuming then thumbs up to both of you for Ten Hag so far.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. I, th- I think he's. I think. I think he's the. He's in control of that club in a way that no manager has been since Ferguson. We saw that with the Rashford call and the Ronaldo stuff, and that can only be a good thing. I think.
1: I was thinking about this earlier, Taylor. That yeah. I, I, if not for some of the questions around where the club, around who's going to be operating the club, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I would honestly think that Manchester United might be past like the worst of this bleak period. I, I think about what you are seeing on the field. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So there is still that massive <laughs> cloud hanging over the club. You know, what's going to happen with the Glazers? All of that stuff is very important and real and could decide all of this and make what I'm about to say meaningless. But, I mean, this team feels so far from the team that got clapped earlier on in the year by by Brighton and Brentford. Weren't those the first two games, right? I mean, they were, they were shipping goals, but I, I, I tried to communicate then and I hope it's clear now that, like, you know, these things take time. And I still think it's going to take more than this year for Man United to turn into a title contender. I'm not sure they're even going to be there next year. But I, I think they are out of crisis mode based off of where things are right now. I think the squad is stable enough. I think Eric Hag is taking control of the team in a positive way. There are clear standards that are being generally abided by. There is a vision in terms of how the team should be playing and what the team is going to look like from week to week. And that should be the bar, Right, that should be the, the the low. That should be the floor for this team. But the team has so many resources and is so talented that even that floor puts them in a better spot than they've been in in the midst of these chaos-riddled last couple of seasons. Well, thumbs up to you both for giving very good
2: answers there, uh, and maybe thumbs down to me because I, I just needed to trap you both into agreeing that you love the Dutch discipline, Daddy, and you have done that now. So thank you both uh, for that. Uh, we're going to take one more break. We'll be back to uh, round out this weekend's action in just a second. Welcome back. We're going to talk about an angry Antonio Conte. Not even an angry Antonio Conte. More of just a, like... Grumbling Antonio Conte after Spurs lost at home 2-0 to Villa. Uh, Two wins in their last seven for Spurs. More on them in a moment. I will not mention uh, that if you really want to annoy Tottenham fans, you can say that they haven't won a league game since November. Uh, I saw somebody on The Athletic point that out, and all of the comments were basically, well, there was that whole month-long break for the World (laughs) Cup. Uh, Maybe you want to include that one in there. It's a slightly misleading one, but two in their last seven in the league is not ideal. But the way... Uh, Villa is playing under Unai Emery is definitely pretty ideal for them. Uh, second half goals for Emi Buendia and Douglas Luiz. Graham, you got some thumbs for Villa.
3: Yeah, so thumbs up, not just to Aston Villa and their performance in this game, but to their game plan. They knew what Unai Emery wanted them to do and they did it very well. So that the back system worked well for Villa in this game. Where they had that width, but also allowed them to pinch the centre of, of of midfield and have bodies in there. This was the best I've seen John McGinn play for Villa this season, uh, and he, he was played on the right. I knew we'd get a John McGinn in there. <laughs> of
1: Attaboy. course we were. He Attaboy. played Attaboy. well in
3: this game. I was not going to let that bypass. Did he play super well, Did he play super well? He always does. Good. Of course right. he does, Joe. Cool. Even when close. he plays badly, he's playing close. super well. I mean, right. Joe, but, I,
2: Graham, I feel like you're sort of like saying that in a begrudging way. Like to be fair to Joe, like. He is super John McGinn, and I feel like if you're not going to give him his title, why does he have that title?
3: Exactly, you know, it's it's not uh it's not conditional, Joe. It's an <laughs> unconditional <laughs> title. Right. He's always Super John again. Fair enough. But he was he was very good in this game. He was on the right side of the midfield three, but he was really playing inside, and and it was his pass that set up Louise for for the second goal. He so he genuinely did have a good game. I'm not just being indulgent, maybe slightly, but he did play well. And Villa were set up not to get countered on. They knew that that's where Spurs are are, are dangerous. They had control when they had the ball, but they, they they were quite happy to sit back and and keep things tight at the back and basically just trust themselves that that Spurs, given their deficiencies, which maybe we'll talk a little bit more about, they weren't going to, to break Villa down. And I thought certain individuals, as I say, McGinn played well. Bendia in particular was, was brilliant at finding space in between the lines. And it was classic Unai Emery in, in, in a good way. Maybe some Premier League fans think of Unai Emery um, as for his time at Arsenal, which obviously didn't go so well but if you're looking at Villarreal and his time at Sevilla this was how those teams, particularly Villarreal, this is how they played and this was the sort of performance we all thought we might see from Villa when, when Emery was appointed. So to contrast Villa's situation right now where with their managerial uh, appointment, they're, look at, they're they're pretty smitten right now. I think Emery is a good fit for that squad. They're already making progress. And then to contrast that with Spurs, with Conte right now, where he is clearly in a huff about everything. His yeah. comments after the game, yeah. not very well-veiled dig at the board about the quality of the squad and the players that might may or may not be signed in this window. I would be surprised if he's still at Tottenham for next season. Uh, I want to I get into
2: Conte because uh, I have some thoughts on that one. First, uh, in looking at the, the Fatma player ratings for this one, uh, Douglas, Louise, Douglas Louise is the highest rated player. He has an 8.6. Graham, can you guess who the lowest rated player is uh, across the board for, for this game? As
3: uh, potentially Hugo Lloris, he is indeed with a four point three. Oh, what a surprise! Not
2: not very <laughs> inspiring from him. Uh, he he coughs up the uh, the the long distance shot that leads to the first goal. Mm. Uh, not a strong performance from him. Uh, a, a World Cup finalist. We we could have had both yeah. World Cup finalists. We in could this have. One. We did yeah. not though.
3: Yeah, so I actually had a thumbs down to both goalkeepers from that final in this match, albeit for different reasons. So as you reference for Lloris. It's because he was at fault for the first Aston Villa goal where, as you say, he allows a fairly tame long range shot to bounce off his chest and then out to Ollie Watkins, who who did really well, by the way, yes. to to turn it back yes. and square for Bendia, when it would have been understandable had yes. he just kind of lashed a shot at the near post. So he does very well there. But Lloris, there was that mistake. There was a couple other shaky moments in possession as well. He ha- He obviously had a good World Cup for France, but... This year hasn't, as a whole, or I should say, 2022 as a whole, hasn't was or wasn't very good for him at, at club level, and there's been a num a, a growing number of mistakes from him, and and this was another one. At least Hugo Lloris was on the pitch to make a mistake, though, because <laughs> Emi Mardine, uh, Martinez is quite clearly still hungover. Uh, he he is back at Villa after Argentina's World Cup celebrations, but only in body, not spirit. He he is in the midst of a week-long hangover, and so Robin Olsen started this match, he keeps a clean sheet. But I saw some pictures of Martinez in training for Villa before this game and thought to myself, yeah, he's not started for Villa anytime Ew. soon. I have seen that face before. Has anyone seen the, the Lisa Simpson meme where she's Clearly got like dry mouth at the table, just just sitting in kind of uh, a haze, a, ha- a hungover haze. That is Emmy Martinez right now. Maybe he'll be back soon, but I I wouldn't count on it. I think he's going to have a hangover for a month.
2: I thought it was it was a really nice moment though when they cut to him on the sidelines and he was asleep, uh, and then they they woke him up and he just woke up for a moment to say like eh, Mbappe overrated and then went back to sleep. Like yeah. at least he still they got woke him up for his for there. his uh,
3: his KFC. We've all been there when you just have to order KFC oh. on uh, on. On Girl Pub. Uh.
2: <laughs> Joe, one, one question that like I, I put in the show notes and I probably sounds like a joke. I'm genuinely curious. Uh, I know how you feel about when an announcer says like, oh, the striker should have done better there. He's got to be doing better. The announcer in this one did say Hugo Reese should have done better uh, in the, like in making that save or not making that save. Mm. How do you feel about that phrase when it comes to goalkeepers?
1: I feel less bad about it. I, I don't okay. know why. Maybe because the idea of stopping a, a ball coming at my area with my hands versus feet. like It's it's hard to kick a ball into the back of the net. I think it's a lot easier to parry one away, uh, at least one that's right in your area. I don't love the phrasing like should have done this or should have done that in general when it comes to soccer because I, make, I feel like it, it minimizes how difficult this stuff is. But I think I feel a little bit better about saying it with a, a goalkeeper. I'd honestly have to think more about that and try to think about like why my mentality might be slightly different there, but I think mm. it is slightly different. I'm not sure why. Yeah, uh, yeah should, I think should, that is too.
3: Should would Fass have done better with his second own goal? No, I mean, what a finish, it. Graham. What a finish. He did as, anything you could ask him <laughs> He to couldn't do. have done any better. Yeah. Uh, Graham, you mentioned
2: Antonio Conte's comments. Uh, I've got them transcribed here for you. What, it starts with basically him saying, uh, we need a solid foundation of 13 to 14 players, and then you can add every year one or two more important players. Uh, pausing there for a moment... If you asked Antonio Conte, do you think Hugo Lloris is one of those 13-14 to 14 solid foundation players, or do you
3: think he would prefer a different goalkeeper? I mean, sure, if he's been watching Spurs with his eyes this <laughs> past year, then Tottenham should be targeting a, a new goalkeeper, I believe. Ah, uh, this is this is terrible because I can't remember if he's just signed a new contract or if his contract is they're coming to a decision on his contract soon. Let's hope they haven't signed that new deal because I really do. It does feel like end kind of a, he's been a great goalkeeper for Spurs over the years, but kind of similar to De Gea, it feels like he is of a past era, and Tottenham need a more modern goalkeeper or at least one that can save uh, shots straight at them, unlike Lloris in this match. But yeah, Conte's Conte's comments after this game were were fascinating. Fascinating. So thumbs down to, to Tottenham's managerial situation because it very much feels like Conte is putting in place the groundwork for him to leave at the end of the season where he can basically make the excuse that it wasn't down to him that Spurs didn't finish in the top four or didn't mount, mount a title challenge there was one part in particular where he said you know we'll we'll do our best and then he was like "the the, the best may be fifth the best maybe sixth the best maybe seventh and the longer he spoke the the expectations fell quicker than I don't know like Tesla stock and <laughs> by by the end it was it was pretty grim stuff for for <laughs> Spurs fan to hear Spurs fans to hear that from the room manager
2: it was weird when he ended with, like, hopefully we're staying up. Like, he really <laughs> did, he didn't do that. Uh, but I, I agree that they were, they were fascinating because at the start, I understand where he's coming from. The question he was asked in the post-match was, like, uh, there were some boos at full-time. Fans were upset. What is your message to the fans? And with that context, I think his answer of he paused for a very long time and made a lot of sounds that, like, indicated he was really trying to get his thoughts together to give a useful answer. And that answer was, I think, pretty logical of, we we need that foundation of 13 to 14 players. Then we have to spend money, 60, 70, or 80 millions. Uh, in this way, you can improve. Um, and then he basically said, we have to create that solid foundation. We don't yeah. have those 13 to 14 players yet, and that's what we're trying to create. So then we can start to build from there. And so in that way, that that is a realistic answer to me. It is, a, it is a, an honest answer of, we don't have that foundation we need, and that's what we're working on. Simultaneously, he has been there for two transfer windows now. In January of last year, they signed Rodrigo Bentancur. They signed Dejan Kulicevski. Uh This past summer, they spent €170 million Euros on Richarlison, Romero, Basuma. Perisic was a free. They had a couple other players in there, too. They have trimmed the squad down as he wanted. And so I, I understand that they are not yet the perfect squad for Antonio Conte. I'm not sure there ever is a perfect squad for Antonio Conte. I think there is
3: always a new player to be signed or a player to be 25 sold. 25 Vector Moseses. That's it. <laughs> Moseses. That's difficult to say. Mosai? victor Moseses. I think it's Moses. <laughs> yeah, it's Mosai, yeah, Mosai. yeah that's, that's the plural. The plural. Mm-hmm.
2: And then one <laughs> Romelu Lukaku on top, just for good right. measure. Yeah. Um, sure. But, but so like I understand where he's coming from, but at the same time, it's not as though Aston Villa are out there spending, you know, 250 million pounds wow. every single transfer window. And so in that way, I felt like the the reaction I saw to this from Spurs fans was sort of like, we understand that he doesn't feel like he has the strongest team yet. And he's right that there is still some quality needed to be added. But it's also not like Antonio Conte is setting this team up to play this progressive attacking soccer that requires these blue chip players, and so I think there is some consternation there. And then you're right, Graham, that as those comments go on and they become much more like, "Well, I don't know. We're going to do our best. We'll see what happens. I hope we do win. <laughs> I hope we win." It's just like that. That's less of a a useful answer for supporters and more of a like, "Yeah, I'm setting the stage for when I then uh, jump to a uh, seemingly greener pasture sort of moment." Yeah.
1: Yeah, Tottenham. Tottenham are just such a mess. Like I know Tottenham fans aren't gonna gonna want to hear this, but Conte is both right and wrong. He's right in that their squad is not good enough. Right, you look at the lineup that took on Aston Villa this weekend. Which of those players are starting for Manchester City? Like I, I like to think about this when I'm trying to figure out you know how good a squad is. I think about you know how close is the U.S. to England or how close is the U. I mean, the answer is not close. The answer with Tottenham is not close. I don't think anyone outside of Kane and, and maybe Son is good enough to start for a team that is realistically competing for the Premier League title. That changes a bit when Richarlison's back in, when Benton Core's back. I mean, things do change, but the lineup that played Aston Villa is is not a particularly good lineup. So I, I do feel what Conte is saying at the, at the same time, it is like a masterclass in blame shifting. You can talk about the tactical stuff. You can talk about, you know, Conte having influence about this team. So it's not like he hasn't had any say. Taylor, I think you did a good job of outlining that. But at the same time, you know, there is blame that goes to Tottenham as like an institution here. They've had four permanent managers since 2019. Pochettino, who was fired towards the end of 2019. Then Jose Mourinho comes in, which is just a a massive change in an idea of how they want to play soccer. Like, I I don't think you could be more disparate than those two managers. Then Nuno comes in. Then Conte comes in. Where is, there's no continuity. (laughs) It's gone. There is no continuity in the squad. There's no continuity with how they've been wanting to play. I guess there was a slight theme with maybe the last three coaches that they want to be a little bit more defensive. But is that really Tottenham's ambition to do that and to be the the club at the top of of the Premier League that does that, that zigs when everyone else zags? I don't know. They haven't done it particularly well this season, so I'm kind of out of answers with Tottenham right now. The squad isn't good enough. Conte yep. isn't doing a great job. But then you know you go away from Conte and you sack him at the end of this year, and and you're just repeating the cycle. There's still nothing built. There is no foundation to me that is clear. I think Tottenham are in a bit of trouble, to be honest.
3: I want to see if anything changes if they sign a creative midfielder in in, in this window, because I do think that sort of player makes a big difference to this Spurs team. This season, they have been unable to control games. And Taylor, you and I spoke about this last week and this trend of Spurs falling behind in, in in games that's 10 matches in a row that they've conceded the, the first goal obviously they don't they, they aren't able to, to 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 mount a comeback in this game they lose this one to Villa 2-0 but i just wonder if you have a player someone like Christian Eriksen who it very much felt like he was on his way back to Tottenham in the summer and I don't really I'm not really sure how that that deal didn't happen given his track record with Spurs and the fact that he won a Serie A title with Antonio Conte at Inter so it very much felt like he should have been a Spurs player of course he goes to Manchester United he's played in a slightly deeper role for them this season which would have suited Spurs perfectly had he been in, in their squad so I'm always wary of Say, I agree with you, Joe, things look like a mess right now, but there is still quality in that Spurs team. And things just generally, this is kind of an unwritten rule, I think, with soccer and and squad building. Things often are not as bad as they seem. Look at Manchester United a year ago and look at them now. And a lot of those players are the same players. And sometimes it just takes one or two signings to change everything. I want to see them go for a creative, um, deep-lying playmaker or just someone who can control the game and Break lines with passes because at the moment they don't have anyone
1: like just, that. Sorry, that. just to be clear, where Man United are now is two points ahead of Tottenham. So I'm not. I think yeah. Man United have improved a lot. And, and Graham, you're right. Things can change very quickly, but I'm, I'm not sure they'll change like like that that quickly. I don't know. My two cents. Yeah.
2: And I would say the worrying thing, if you're a Tottenham supporter, would be that if they are going out and making a signing, uh, Philip Buckingham of The Athletic wrote a great piece, maybe you both have seen it, where he sort of analyzed uh, the transfer activity of the big big six clubs in England uh, and looked at every signing over £20 million since, I think, the summer of 2019. Uh, And he rated them as hit, miss, or jury is still out. Arsenal, for example, have had 11 signings in that window Um, The only miss was Nicola Pepe. The jury is still out on Fabio Vieira. So they hit on nine of their 11 signings. Uh, When it comes to Spurs, they have made 10 such signings of 20 million pounds or more. Uh, The jury is still out, according to Mr. Buckingham, on uh, Yves Bissouma. So removing him, that leaves you nine. If you all haven't seen this, how many
3: hits do you think they have had of those nine players? Um, well, this, I guess this is subjective. Is this someone else's rank yes. this, right? Mm-hmm. So, I have to, so I would have Richarlison as a hit, but I'm not sure if other people may have he that does. As, a, as a hit. He does. That's one. Right. Okay. Is that the only one? There's one Perisic. more. He's been okay. Perisic, perhaps? Christian Romero is the only other one, because uh, right, Perisic sure. was a free,
2: so I think that's why he's not okay. on here. But Endombele uh, is a miss. Los Celso is a miss. Sergio uh, Reguilon is a miss. Bergwine miss. Emerson Royale. Ryan Sessignon and Brian Heal. Yeah. Uh, all misses. So... When you Not put ideal. it in that context, slight slight concerns about if Tottenham are spending a bunch of money yeah. uh, in this window.
3: Yeah, and and Daniel Levy, you just get the sense with all the reporting that's coming out of Spurs right now. They have spent a bunch. Taylor, you, you said in the summer they spent, what was it, 170 million yeah. euros? I think that was really to keep Conte happy and, and to give him a chance of building a squad. But the problem for Spurs is... You get the sense that Daniel Levy's going. Wait, we need we need to spend a hundred million in every single transfer window because that is what the other top six Premier League clubs do. Every single window, maybe with the exception of January, certainly a, a summer window, that's the amount that they spend. So Spurs want to be within that company. That's the amount of money they need to spend indefinitely going forward. It can't just be a one off. I mean.
2: Looking at Nottingham Forest, I don't know how much they spent. I know how many players they've brought in. Yeah, I think Daniel Levy looking at them and thinking like, wait, they're doing what now? We got to do what now? No, thank you. (laughs) No, thank you. Uh, So we will see how things play out for Antonio Conte and for Spurs. But again, thumbs up to Aston Villa uh, and uh, Unai Emery. His Premier League Redemption saga continues. Uh, Let's talk Nottingham Forest, the aforementioned Nottingham Forest uh, and their one-to-one draw with Chelsea. Uh, Joe, I am still very confused about this Chelsea team, because Graham Potter, to me, felt like a signing, like a managerial signing that was just going to be rock solid. Everything he did with Brighton, it felt like he was just going to get this team humming, they were going to be great, uh, and he would be there, sort of like Jurgen Klopp, coming in and just being this like transformational figure who was then for there for many seasons. And now we're already getting reports that maybe he's on the hot seat, maybe he could be in some trouble. I don't really have a good understanding maybe because I stopped paying attention to the Premier League for like the month leading up to the World Cup. Maybe that's something I can sort of uh, pay more attention to uh, over the next couple of weeks and try to get a better idea of. Do you have thoughts on the present situation at Chelsea?
1: Well, so my, my overarching thought at least about Graham Potter is that soccer is a, is a cruel game and managers probably have less of an impact on what we see on the field than we might think they do, or at least we might be inclined to think they do. So, I don't think it's reasonable to expect Potter to come in and fix everything with Chelsea. At the same time, I don't think that this Chelsea team has been good at all. They have looked like they've lacked real ideas in how they play. And, and to be honest, some of that does come down to the manager, right? I believe, I think about the U.S. women's national team in this regard. I keep I keep tying it to the U.S. national teams. But I, I think the U.S. plays right now well under their ceiling because they're not very good at breaking teams down. And, and a lot of that, at least the ideas that, that allow the players to go out there and execute should come from the manager, should come from the coaching staff. I think Vlatko has done a really bad job in that regard. I think Potter has generally done a, a pretty bad job of that since taking over Chelsea. It has been inconsistent. It feels like to me there have been moments where they're changing shape just for the sake of changing shape, and maybe Potter is overthinking things a little bit here. I'm optimistic for them at least to climb up the table because you know it, it shouldn't be all that hard to do that. They're in eighth right now. They should climb, right? Otherwise, the season will have been a total catastrophe. And it does seem like things are trending in that direction. But, you know, they need to find some stability. Maybe January helps them do that. Maybe making a couple of transfers in, in this January window will help. I think it should. If it doesn't, they're probably in some trouble. But yeah, Taylor, this is not, a, not at all a good situation for Chelsea right now.
2: In the nonsense situation that's just been created there, and maybe this is still my like Grand Potter bias showing. If you did swap them, if Vlatko went to Chelsea and Graham Potter went to the U.S. women's national team, my assumption is that the U.S. gets better and Chelsea gets worse or stays yes. the same.
1: Yes. Yeah. I retweet. At least that's my opinion. Yes.
2: <laughs> All right. So uh, maybe not the best of times uh, for Chelsea. Christian Pulisic involved, though, so that's fun. Uh, yeah. Graham, were you yeah. impressed by Nottingham Forest's uh, fight back in this one?
3: To an extent, yeah. So this was the did-you-really-need-that-signing-in-the-summer-transfer-window derby, and I was more <laughs> impressed with... Nottingham Forest, despite the the number of players. I'm still getting to grips with. I, I kept on calling, last week I kept on calling Steve Cooper Steve Cook, and I wondered why that was. Because Steve Cook, as far as I was as aware was still playing for Bournemouth. No, he signed for Nottingham Forest in, in the summer. Oh I didn't realise, and I must have read his name somewhere and got the two conflated. But anyway, Steve Cooper is a is manager of Nottingham Forest. And thumbs up to his and his team's approach in this match, particularly in, in the second half, was when they they really started to come onto a game, when they really started to give Chelsea some trouble. And it was similar in many ways to how Villa played uh, against Spurs. I, I don't think Forrest were as defensively disciplined as Villa were in in that game. But in terms of how they played on the attack, their match was was also about getting the ball forward quickly. They were getting it into Gibbs-White, who this was probably the best match I've seen him play for Forrest since he made that that, that move from Wolves in, in the summer. And then Awani and Brennan Johnson as well. They were all very influential. And that front line was... Chelsea didn't like that front line at all and and Koulibaly in particular was getting pulled out of position and didn't really know whether he was coming forward to to close the space or standing off and it was a bit of a mess for for Chelsea in that regard but Forrest looked dangerous they they did an excellent job of getting in between the lines getting to the byline as well when they attacked it wide there was a number of times when they were able to cut it back and Chelsea didn't really know whether to track the late runners into the box or who was picking up who. And I thought it was a sign of what Forest can be under, under Steve Cooper. Steve Cooper last season... Um, forged this very coherent attacking unit I was very impressed with Forrest in the Championship obviously it's a big jump up to the Premier League but we haven't really seen the principles of that Forest team this season and I thought this match was a sign of maybe that side and all those players that they signed in the summer starting to gel together into something recognisable from last season
2: the only other note I have for this game is just that I want to give thumbs up to Haji Wright for being a trendsetter because we have his off the heel unintentional goal in the World Cup. Yep. Uh, then we have the that sort of similar moment uh, for the own goal in Leicester's game, and then in this game we had Willie Bolly with the unintentional heel off of his heel onto the crossbar, and then Raheem Sterling smashes it into the goal. So I feel like Haji Wright started a trend there. Credit to him. Uh, we can move on from that game, though. Graham, let's talk City Everton for a moment. Uh, are your
3: thumbs in this one, in a one-to-one draw. Um, so, thumbs up to one of the goals of the season so far from Damari Gray, who threw in a tactical stumble in there just before he has the, the shot, and that kind of helps create the space, because I don't think anyone is expecting him to unleash that after he's almost face-planted on the Etihad, Etihad turf. And, and I wonder if we might see more players try that. You talk about Hadji Wright setting a trend. Yeah. Maybe this is going to be the Damari Gray, where players purposely pretend to fall over to create the space for for a shot. So that was that was quite an equaliser from can I jump in there for a moment just to say, I watched this multiple times because
2: I I say it so often that it could probably be on the TSS bingo card, that I think sometimes when a striker has enough time to think, I could miss this, or I hope I make this, uh. you get into trouble. And and I wonder if Damari the Gray there, if he just cuts inside and then has that shot... Does he have the time to think like, oh, I hope I put this on frame versus when he has that slip. I think it removes a lot of the thought. And instead he's like, I get the shot off as quickly as I can. (laughs) And and, and in some ways, I wonder if that slip sets him up uh, more to then have that beautiful finish. So yeah, maybe that should be the trend. Uh, Slip if you're in doubt and then just uh, play for panic and instinct and see what happens.
3: Yeah, I agree. It almost kind of makes up his mind for him where if he cuts inside and he doesn't slip, maybe he's thinking about a pass or finding a teammate, whereas because he has that slip and he's fearing I've kind of messed up this attacking move, I'll just get the shot away as quickly as I can. And what a shot it was off the underside of of the bar salvages a point from this game for Everton, which is not something I no. saw happening, particularly after Manchester City scored so early through the, the, the Cyborg, who scored 21 Premier League goals this season, which is, I think, more than half the teams in the Premier League this season, which is absolutely... Ridiculous. But um, thumbs down to just a a slight aside, a a slight tangent. Thumbs down to Phil Foden, who's started just one of City's last six Premier League matches. And it's become clear that Guardiola sees it as a choice between Foden and and Grealish. And at the moment, he is favouring Jack Grealish, despite him still not really playing at his best. I think Grealish has had a bit of criticism recently, particularly after that Leeds game where he was pretty wasteful. And there was some interesting stuff from Guardiola after the game uh, where he basically said Phil Foden is better when Manche- Manchester City play a more vertib- vertical game and Grealish gives them more control. I mean, who am I to argue with Pep Guardiola? I'm, that seems Red a bit rusting. strange to me. That's who I, you are. <laughs> that seems a bit strange to me. Foden is the one I would expect to kind of rotate around the positions and create overloads in possession. Whereas Grealish, when you look back to the player he was at Villa, is the guy you want driving an isolated defender and, and, and forcing them, them into, into decisions. So clearly I and myself and Pep Guardiola have different ideas about Grealish and, and Foden as, uh, as as players. And I guess who fight, am I to fight, to fight, argue with him? fight. Well,
2: who's who's saying that? What? <laughs> I know this would never happen because I do think City very much rate Phil Foden. But if we're talking about trendsetters and trends that have happened, like I, I do think there's something to Mikel Arteta, uh, an assistant under Pep, bringing in players that are very good at Man City, but maybe never going to be that like rock solid starter. Everybody appreciates them in Zinchenko and Gabriel Jesus. And like maybe Phil Foden is another one of those where like if Pep Guardiola is not using him, like d- d- would Arsenal be? wise to throw like a cheeky 80 million at them and just bring in Phil Foden and then, uh, you know, win the league and the Champions League at the same time. Why not?
3: Yeah, I mean, whatever Phil Foden's release clause is, they should do the Liverpool bidding for, or Arsenal bidding for Luis Suarez trick where it was like a pound over the release clause just to see what what Manchester City do. So yeah, like 80 million and one pound.
2: Yeah. I just, then you risk upsetting Erling Haaland who will track you down a la the T-1000 from Terminator (laughs) 2. If people haven't seen that sideline footage of him going in for the tackle, it is truly terrifying. The way he chases yeah. down—I forget who it is—he puts the tackle in on. But goodness gracious, he's a big
3: man and running at full speed. I don't think I would want to be tackled by him. Yeah, and he—he he was fired up for this game. Yeah. I don't know what happened. Yeah. He seemed to be in an argument with—I think it was with—was uh, Ben Godfrey yes. from a corner yes, kick was. where he. There was a little needle there, and then there's that challenge, which is a per, is the the perfect orange card mm-hmm. slide tackle where. It seems like more than a yellow card but is it enough for a red I'm not entirely sure but it it was a bit of a wild tackle from Haaland so I'm not sure what happened there there was some craftiness from him in that one cuz he has
2: that tackle and then if you watch he he deliberately Runs a good twenty yards away from it, not trying to avoid the card, I think, but because he realizes he could very quickly be like boxed into a corner by angry Everton players and then against the Everton crowd. so I think he he gets away, gets himself some breathing room, and then gets that card. So I guess credit to him, but also credit to everton uh, for getting the equalizer and the draw there. Uh, let's go to Spain for a moment uh let's uh spend some time talking about Real Madrid two via to lead nil. Uh, I have some angry words for Valladolid in a moment, but Joe, first, uh, let's say some nice things about Madrid,
1: particularly Karim Benzema. Yeah, thumbs up to Karim Benzema for not aging. I I don't understand it at this point. He's 35, had his maybe best season of his career last year at 34, has uh, a bunch of goals already. The series averaging 0.88 goals per 90 this year, which is a fantastic clip. He scored both of Real Madrid's goals in this this 2-0 win over Real Valladolid. Missed the World Cup with a thigh injury, and he's back in the Real Madrid team like nothing ever happened. So all of that feels very Kareem Benzema. As you said, Hmm. Taylor, in the intro, What the the weekend happened, so Kareem Benzema scored or something along those lines. That is how this game works at this point. That's my thumbs up from this game. My thumbs down from this game goes to the racist Valladolid fans and La Liga. Because Vinicius Jr. is subbed off in the 88th minute of this game. As he walks off, he's seen and heard receiving slurs from the home Valladolid fans this is not the first time this has happened this year, directed at, at Vinny Jr. or or other players across La Liga and, and, and Europe and other places as well, of course. Vinicius Jr. and Rodrigo have both spoken out against La Liga as this year has gone on. David Alaba tweeted, and there was a bunch, of, a bunch of stuff about this incident in particular that happened after this match. These things keep happening, right? They've happened in La Liga matches multiple times this season, directed at, at Vinny alone, and then other times, of course, outside of that. It is ridiculous that people are still doing this stuff that's absurd Mm. and it's sad it's pathetic it's also ridiculous that La Liga can't seem to either make rules that discourage this that are strong enough to discourage this kind of behavior or enforce them right it is absurd that this stuff can continue to happen that the match can go on and that it is left up to the players the 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 victims here to be the ones that are 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 trying to fight back against it it is it's it's awful it's and it keeps happening so both thumbs directly down and that's not a strong enough reaction to all this but that's what I got.
2: Thank you for, for putting that in the notes, Joe, and talking about it. Uh, because I agree with everything you said. Uh, I would add, it, it sort of, it, my guess would be that it's a similar situation to in Serie A. Uh, there were the Inter fans who, when Lukaku was frustrated with being racially abused a few seasons ago, they wrote that letter saying, like, basically, like, we're not racist. We're trying to get under people's skin. We're trying to upset them so that they don't have a good performance. And I would say to that, Uh, If that were going to be the defense here, number one, as you said, it's Vinny Jr. being subbed off. So I don't know how much influence that's going to have in a player who's no longer playing. But number two... If the way you're bothering a player is by uh, going straight to racism, I would say that makes you racist. So uh, I think in that way, there's no defense, there's nothing that La Liga can stand on here. It should be an actionable thing, it should be a thing that that the league steps in and punishes the clubs and makes very strong statements, and I agree with you that they haven't, is shameful and ridiculous and frustrating and many other words that... uh, I, I I struggle to contain my my frustration and anger with it. So I'm glad that you brought it up. Joe, I would just move us on swiftly to uh, a, a slightly less uh, controversial, but still slightly frustrating topic. Graham, uh, is you saying that Thibaut Courtois is the best goalkeeper in the world?
3: Yeah, so thumbs up to Thibaut Courtois, as you say, being the best goalkeeper in the <laughs> Matt world. Matt Turner moment. exists, I th- Graham. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Matt Turner slander there uh, indirectly. But Thibaut Courtois is the better version, I think, of Matt Turner. Uh, am I allowed to say that? Is that allowed? Uh, anyway, borderline. I know the World Cup d- didn't go great for Thibaut Courtois, but that was hardly down to him. That was down to Roberto Martinez. And um, <laughs> and this performance was a reminder of how he was playing before the World Cup. There were some incredible saves from him, one in particular on 67 minutes from a Sergio Leon header. Sergio Leon, by the way, gets sent off in this match for basically being overly frustrated at the award of the penalty, which Benzema scores to put Real Madrid ahead. And the save from Courtois from Leon was amazing and it and it came at a critical point in the match where Real Madrid were able to to play their own game a bit after, a bit better after that. They score the goal through the penalty and then they score a, a second through Benzema, Camavinga, who makes this incredible run to the byline and then squares it for, for Benzema to, to to finish. So it was it really gave Real Madrid a platform at that time. And as I say, I, I really do believe he's the best goalkeeper in in the world at the moment, which maybe goes slightly against the grain of, I said about Lloris and De Gea, those goalkeepers are of of maybe a a past generation, I would argue Courtois kind of of a a past generation in terms of his profile, he's not particularly great on the ball, he is a traditional goalkeeper who makes saves, but he makes so many good saves in pretty much every match for Real Madrid that I have to have him top of the list in, in the world right now. Uh, One more game from Spain Uh, we should spend some time on. Barcelona 1, Espanyol
2: 1. Joe, not a big fan of Marcos Alonso at center back? Is is that what I'm getting? (sighs) I
1: mean, I love these little bits of experimentation that we see sometimes. We had Luke Shaw at center back this weekend. We had Marcos Alonso. He's been there a few times this year for Barcelona. It just didn't go great for them in this game. So he scores one. Yay, Marcos Alonso. Good job. He scores a, a header in the seventh minute. And that puts Barcelona 1-0 up. And then he steps on Joselu's leg, ankle, foot, heel area in the box. And, and credit to Matthew LaHaz, who gets this this call absolutely right. No. Uh, also, thumbs down. Or, <laughs> you know what? No, I'm going to go thumbs up. I'm going to go contrary here. Thumbs up to Matthew LaHaz for continuing to be just pure chaos. He gave, you know, 37,000 cards in his last World Cup game. That was Argentina versus the Netherlands in a quarterfinal. And then he gave another 37,000 cards. In this game, shoot, I'm trying to find... The number 17. It was 13 yellow cards, is what, I, is what I have written down in my notes. Se- it,
2: it's se- I, know, I saw that, too. It's really weird. I counted them. He gave 17 yellow cards, and okay, then se- uh, two of those were second yellows. There it two is. Two red cards. There yeah. it is.
1: So I think maybe that's a disparity. He sent multiple people off. Carded Xavi, just an agent of pure <laughs> chaos yet again. I don't think Lahaz got any of the big calls wrong in this game, so credit to him for that. Maybe less so for, for a lack of control on the match and and once again becoming the center of the story. But as a neutral who has nothing invested in... Spanish footballer in Matthew Lahoz and, and likes to be entertained. Thumbs up to him. Thumbs down for Marcus Alonso for that that challenge. And maybe it's time for Xavi to put you know like one of the actual center backs that he has on his bench into the into the lineup. But who am I to judge? Never.
2: Yeah. I, yeah. Oh no, D- Graham. Don't even worry because I, as host dictator, am removing that thumbs up for Matthew Lahoz. I will not allow that on this show <laughs> uh, because Joe. He called 26 fouls, uh, according yeah. to Log. So just to reiterate, 26 fouls called 17 yellow cards. Yes. I'm not sure the Xavi one is included in that list, so that's amazing. Uh, play was stopped for a total of 19 minutes in this game. That's a La Liga record. There were nine minutes of added time, and I believe four were actively played. It really was the Matthew Lahaw's uh, I am the star, I am the Galactico, I am the one that everyone wants yes. to see special. And in that way... Yeah. Still thumbs down, because my goodness, <laughs> that man is a disruptive force.
3: It was it was particularly glorious because it comes on the back Stop of that World yes. Cup game. It was, it was, where, it where, really it, was. Where everyone is like, okay, Matthew, you can't have another game like that. And he's like, you bet. Don't back down, double down.
0: <laughs>
2: oh, I hate that he's becoming the anti-hero of this show. Love uh, him. <laughs> one more game that we should uh, spend some time on. Joe, credit to you for suggesting this one. Graham, uh, tell us about the Sterling Albion game this weekend.
3: Yeah, so thumbs up to being back at the football hey, again. It was my first yeah. match since before the the World Cup. And thumbs up to Sterling Albion maintaining their title charge with a third derby win of the season. I did a quick walkthrough of Fourth Bank on the Patreon. That's been published today. So subscribe to TSS Plus to see that and see where I get my pies before, uh, before kickoff. But thumbs down, however, to... Kai Fotheringham, having probably played his last game for Sterling Albion, this this was the last match of his loan agreement. And I was sitting right next to Christoph Berra, who used to he used to play for Scotland and Hearts, but he's now a first team coach at Wraith Rovers, and he was clearly there to watch Kai Fotheringham. He was taking notes every time he did something on the ball. Apparently there were also coaches from Dunfermline and Dundee United to all watch him. So unfortunately, um I think that's probably the title race over for us. <laughs> he's he's far too good for, for Sterling Albion. And uh, yeah, not even the pies are good enough to keep him at the club. Did you try to run any interference, Graham? Or did you try to like loudly talk talk badly about Fotherham while yeah. the scout was around? Yeah, to my pals, I was like, oh, that Fotherham was such a disruptive <laughs> in- influence in the dressing room. <laughs>
2: Always you don't want him, him around meetings. the club. Yeah. We'll, we'll be
3: so grateful when he leaves.
2: Um, all right, so maybe not the happiest of times for Graham, but still happy. I'm. I'm sure there was a pie. I'm sure being back at the football was good. Oh, there was. There was two. Uh, and then, of course, uh, what,
3: what, what different types or the same one? <laughs> different. So I had a steak pie, which is a classic staple, and then I had chicken curry pie. Which was the special Ooh. pie of the day. So. Uh, You you can tell
2: that we've gone long when we get to the pie segment of the show. (laughs) Uh, Graham, we did have an Old Firm Derby uh, this morning. It has since happened. Uh, A two-two draw, all the Americans involved.
3: Uh, I'm assuming everybody's happy with that one. Uh, No, nobody's happy with anything, even when their team wins in Scottish (laughs) football. So this was a really peculiar match where I'll keep this short, but Celtic dominated for 45 minutes. And then Ryan Kent and Fashion Sakala turned up and the whole game changed and Rangers were 2-1 ahead. And then Celtic scored through Kyogo, who I still can't believe didn't go to the World Cup with Japan. Maeda actually scored the first goal for a change. Uh, It was a one-on-one situation as well. So he might have, if he'd done that in Qatar, maybe things might have been different for, for Japan. But, uh, yeah, I think the title race in Scotland is over. There was some good USMNT on USMNT action in this match, particularly towards the end of the game where CCV makes this incredible block challenge on Malik Tillman, and then James Sand's comes off the bench and hey, was yeah. very bad again <laughs> I'm, I'm just not getting a good showcase of james sands ability in scotland he's yeah i'm not sure what's going no? on there. but ccv and Tillman were, were both uh we both good that, i would say particularly ccv again he's just one of the best players in the country right that now. that five minute cameo wasn't enough for you to have uh, objective analysis so James Sands, oh, no. Rangers are pushing, oh, no. <laughs> I think at that point it's 2-2 and Rangers are oh, pushing no. for a goal to go ahead to win to win it. They need a win to stay in the title race. And James Sands comes on, his first touch of the ball, it's like he wants a full 30 seconds to decide what to do with it, which you don't get in an old from derby. He loses it in the middle of the pitch, Celtic come forward on the on the counter-attack and there was a couple moments like that. He's He's just having a rough time of it, I'm sure he is a better player than he's shown for Rangers this season, but he has been bad. Let's just go ahead and say that's Grand Potter's fault, too.
2: Uh, Gentlemen, thank you very much for going very long to talk about all of the weekend's action with me. Joe Lowry, thank you very much. I know you've got time constraints. I appreciate you uh, sticking with us throughout this one. Oh, yeah, this was fun. You got it, Taylor. Uh, Graham Ruffin uh, you got nothing else going on you're fine
3: <laughs> <laughs> i certainly got less going on than Ryan Bailey who's the podcasting equivalent of the Bundesliga just takes more time off after Christmas yeah sure he's a, he's a global traveler
2: you never know where he's gonna be <laughs> uh, but you can rest assured that I know exactly where he is there will be is it Center, S- Center Park Center uh, Park or Hard Rock Cafe or something along those lines uh, we look forward to having Ryan Bailey back many more shows uh, to come this week but for now listeners thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you all again soon